1: This is James Stansel of the New Books Network, the African-American studies channel. And I'm here today uh, talking with Tawana L. Steptoe. She's a native Houstonian and her book is Houston Bound, Culture and Color in a Jim Crow City. She's a professor at the University of Arizona and assistant professor of history at the University of Arizona. And I had a great time talking with her. I'm based in Houston. And so we got to talk about a few things that were Houston related. But really, you know, I think anyone across the country can get a lot of this interview. Um, I've done a couple of interviews where we talk about people who research their past and their background. And this is, you know, a really interesting topic and something that everyone can do. So listen and maybe you can get some tips on studying your own history, your own heritage, and your own area, just like she did. And again, the book is. Houston-bound Culture and Color in a Jim Crow City, Tawana L. Steptoe, University of California Press. Listen and enjoy. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network, the African American Studies channel. I'm your host, James Stansel, and I'm here today with Dr. Tawana L. Steptoe. She is an assistant professor of history at the University of Arizona, and we're going to be talking with her today on the New Books Network about her book, Houston Bound, Culture and Color in a Jim Crow City. Tawana, can you hear me? How are you today?
0: Yes, I can hear you. I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me.
1: It is my pleasure. And, you know, we talked a little offline about how excited I was about your book when I saw it. You know, I waited and waited and waited till I can get me a copy of it. And uh, I wanted to have you on the show because we have a lot of folks in the Houston area. I'm Houston based. I um, mean, this book is something that I think will be interesting for everyone nationwide. But I'm Houston based and I want our Houston listeners to know that you're going to be featured in today's episode of the New Books Network African-American Studies channel podcast. Right. So. Tawana, you're doing well. You're out there at the University of Arizona. And do you mind maybe tell us a little bit about your background and what made you interested in writing about Houston and Houston Battle? culture and color in a Jim Crow city?
0: Yeah, well, I'm a native Houstonian. I was born and mostly raised there. My family moved around a little when I was very young. But uh, by the time I started school in kindergarten, I was uh, Houston-based. And my family's been in Houston for multiple generations, too. Okay. And, uh, you know, when I was when I first went off to college, I went to University of Texas, mm-hmm. and I was a film major there, majored in radio, television, and film, and I got very interested in neighborhoods and telling stories about neighborhoods and communities and the cultures that come out of them okay And when I was a film major, I decided to do a short documentary for my senior thesis film that was about my original neighborhood, Clinton Park Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. Houston, which is uh, where my father and aunts and uncles were raised. And I lived there for a little while when I was a child before my family moved to the East Side. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to, I took a camera, a 16 millimeter film camera borrowed from the University of Texas, and went down there. And I spent a weekend. Kind of going around the old neighborhood, uh, taking images, interviewing people and put it together into the story about how the community had changed since its roots in the 50s to the end of the 20th century. And that's sort of what got me interested in Houston history and the history of uh, black neighborhoods at the time. You know, it started from a really personal place, but from a different discipline, from film and doing documentary uh, from there, though, I decided that I wanted to know more of the history. You know, I had the technical background from my education at UT, but I decided to go and, and get a master's in Afro-American studies. And that's what took me out of Texas. Okay, I, I went to University of Wisconsin in Madison for an MA in Afro-American studies and stuck around to get a Ph.D. in history there. And, uh, you know, University of Wisconsin, it may not sound logical, but it actually has a very strong African-American history program and Southern history. So I wound (laughs) up having to leave the South to learn more about the South in that way. And uh, it was there that I decided to start writing about Houston. Mm -hmm. And uh, Houston Bound sort of unfolded uh, as a master's thesis and then finally a dissertation that I defended there and then started work on the manuscript.
1: Wow, wow. That sounds great. So uh, a Texas girl, a Houston girl going up to UT and then all the way up to Wisconsin and back. That's Yes, all.
0: snowy, cold, Wisconsin. I was
1: just about to ask you how, how you handled that yes, weather up there. It's
0: very tough, very tough. I think that's why I wound up marrying a person from Atlanta, another grad student. We could commiserate over how miserable we were in the cold.
1: <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Well, I'm so glad that you didn't give up because we were able to get a great book out of your struggles. And the book is Houston Bound, Culture and Color in a Jim Crow City. And it's published by the University of California Press. And here we are on the New Books Network, the African-American Studies channel. And I'm here with Tawana L. Steptoe. She's an assistant professor of history at the University of Arizona. And we're talking about her book, her book about Houston Color and Culture in a Jim Crow City, the title Houston Bound. And before we go any further and maybe get into the book, you know, this cover is just so amazing, Tawana. You know, and we've talked about this, you know, before a little bit, but I was just so fascinated. And that was one of the things, honestly, that attracted me to the book as well. You know, Houston. And then I saw this gentleman here. He looks like a, a blues performer. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about about the, the uh, cover of your book and kind of who this person is and how it, it came to be?
0: Yes, well, the cover features Lightning Hopkins, you know, one of the greatest blues musicians and who also has a very strong tie to Houston. And I thought that he would be a really great way to sort of introduce people to Houston. In fact, the title of the book comes from a Lightning Hopkins song called Houston Bound. And uh, he recorded that song, I believe it was around the late 1950s. He recorded it, actually, in New York. And it was about how he couldn't wait to get back home to Houston. Wow. Uh, But like the people in the book, Lightning Hopkins was a person who moved to Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the characters in the book come from East Texas, and Lightning Hopkins is from Centerville, oh, which okay. if you've ever traveled on I-45 north to Dallas, you've probably gone through Centerville. Mm-hmm. And if you're smart, you've stopped for barbecue because they've got some of the best <laughs> in Texas. Uh, so Lightning Hopkins was a, a blues man, and he used to travel uh, you know, dirt roads of East Texas playing music with Texas Alexander. And they stumbled into Houston for the first time in the 30s. And then after World War II sometime, he permanently settled in the city and became a fixture in Third Ward. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, when he first got to the city, he would set up on the corner, uh, he would set up on Dowling. You know he'd get there with his guitar and play and people would come by and you know feel his guitar case would change <laughs> and from there he went on to become one of the most influential musicians in Texas history wow, wow. and to influence the blues so uh, you know Lightning Hopkins sort of guided me for a lot of this book I would write while I had him playing in the background so his voice is wow. a big part of the book so it just sort of made sense to put that picture on the cover you know he's sort of stomping through third Ward. (laughs) in the image. And that image was originally used on one of his albums called Mm -hmm. Traveling This Road by Myself. Okay, And uh, I thought it was a really good depiction of migration with him as a migrant, but also you can kind of see Houston in there as well. And that image is transposed over an old image of what Houston looked like in the Jim Crow era. Oh, got it,
1: got it, got it. Wow well that's 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 awesome houston bound culture and color in a jim crow city and your your book there is such a connection with the music not just with the cover but all throughout the book There, there there's such a you know i wouldn't call it like a uh a, a musical player or, <laughs> or anything but the music is is so important uh to what you talk about in your book um so on that note can we just talk about some of the uh uh, more important topics or, or or key things or things that you want to share that you think people should look out for and, and, and areas of focus in your book?
0: Yes. Well, as a historian, I really focus on social and cultural history. Mm-hmm. And I was interested in this story of migration to Houston because I thought that the story of Houston, while it is a local story that focuses on one city, mm-hmm. I thought tells us something important about the history of race and migration and urbanization more broadly. Okay. Uh, Houston is a town that transitioned from being black and white into something that was much more multi-ethnic or multi mm-hmm. And uh, what I found is, you know, when I was in grad school, I... Was dissatisfied with a lot of the books that I was reading about the Jim Crow era because they so often played on binaries. You know, if it was a history of the South or the Eastern part of the United States, then it was a black bi- white binary. You sure, know, sure. what were African Americans and Anglo Americans doing? When you move more west, a lot of the binaries tended to look at Mexican American and Anglo American issues. Right. But then I, I stumbled upon a book by a historian named Neil Foley. Neil mm-hmm. works at SMU right now. Okay, uh, he's uh, one of the directors of the Clement Center for Southwestern Studies. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a book called The White Scourge Mm. Uh, came out in the 90s. And it was a multiracial book about Texas that looked at rural central Texas and cotton production and how white, black and Mexican-American people played a role in that. Mm. And I thought, aha, now that's a book that looks (laughs) like the Texas I know, a place that's more multiethnic and that isn't rooted in binaries where diverse people were making contact. So I started looking into Houston and discovered that it's around the 1920s, after World War One, that Houston starts to first transition from being black and white to something more multi-ethnic. Mm-hmm. And I discovered that that is when you start having a large number of people from Louisiana, especially mm-hmm. rural southwest Louisiana, okay. who are migrating to Houston for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is labor. Labor really... Uh, Attracted a lot of diverse people to come to the city because of the growth of the ship channel, you know, of the exporting of goods from Houston to other places. They always needed workers. You had all of these railroads. So, because of this growing economy, it attracted people like rural farmers who are from Southwest Louisiana who were looking for wage labor. And uh, also the Mississippi flood of 1927 made conditions horrible, you know, in uh, parts of Louisiana as well as Mississippi, Arkansas, you know, the whole Mississippi River Valley. Mm -hmm. And so they wound up mostly coming to Houston, right? They didn't go east to New Orleans. They came west to Houston to take jobs. And uh, the Creoles were French-speaking. They were Catholic, right? Uh, By law, they were Negro or Black. Right. Which goes back to the Plessy v. Ferguson decision. Right. Right. You know, declared a Creole of color in New Orleans was black by law. So by law, they were Creole. But what I was interested in with them is that they didn't identify as black or white. Hmm. A lot of Creoles of color looked at Creole as being its own race. Mm -hmm. And that just comes from the history of Louisiana, where they are descendants of free people of color people who were free before the Civil War. So they still had this subjectivity as a mixed race people. Right, so I also, I wanted to compare the experience of creoles of color coming into Houston, not identifying as black or white, speaking a different language, having a different religious culture. I wanted to compare that to the experience of ethnic Mexicans also moving into Houston at the same time. Had some similar issues, they also came for labor In the case of people of mexican descent who came from other parts of texas right what we call tejanos Mm -hmm. they were often trying to get away from segregation because there was a version of jim crow that was segregating them in south texas and they were joined by people from mexico who were fleeing the mexican revolution right so i thought how interesting it would be to look at a city where you've got French-speaking people who identify as Creole, you've got Tejanos and Mexicans coming, Spanish-speaking Catholic, and they're trying to fit into the city that is black or white Jim Crow, where the black population is largely coming from rural East Texas, and making homes in Houston at the same time. So I wondered then, how did migration affect the way that people negotiated race Mm -hmm. in a Jim Crow city that was becoming increasingly diverse? And I felt like a lot of the literature on Jim Crow didn't factor in urbanization and these cities that were becoming more diverse at the same time as Jim Crow was becoming more rooted in the politics. How did those two things go together was my central question when I started researching. So what I found is that, you know, race notions of race did change, but not always at the political level. You know, Houston remained a Jim Crow, black, white city on the surface, right? The laws divided you into black or white. Mm -hmm. What was going on at the community level was something that was far more complicated. And so I look at people's racial subjectivity, which is how people's past, where they come from, and how that affects how they identify themselves racially. And racial subjectivity did not fall into black or white. It was far more complicated than that. So I found that there was, um, I look at, by the 1960s, I argue that Creole had become like an ethnicity that exists Hmm. within blackness, right? And people tend to often conflate blackness as just meaning one thing all the time. right? But I argue that because of migration, we start to see the development of ethnicities within blackness and creole is one of those things so by the 60s by the late 1960s there were more creoles who began to identify as black and that had a lot to do with the culmination of civil rights and black power you know the idea of soul creoles started to absorb as well Mm -hmm. and begin to identify more with blackness than their ancestors had so Creole today, I argue, in Houston, exists as a type of ethnicity within Blackness mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the same way that often you might find in a place like New York City, where you have descendants of Jamaican immigrants who are Black, right? But Jamaican might be just a different ethnicity that distinguishes them from descendants of the Great Migration, right? If okay. it came up from South Carolina, they're all Black racially. But when you look beneath the surface, you see something multi-ethnic going on within mm-hmm. Blackness.
1: There are some differences. Wow. Right. right. And if anyone has spent any time in Houston, you know that Houston is one of the most diverse cities in the United States. And you can see exactly like Dr. Steptoe was saying there, that there is a distinctive Creole uh, as a type folk, as an ethnicity within um, African-Americans and black people and, and black culture. I mean, some of you all listening right now probably are descended um, from Creoles or are Creole yourself.
0: Yes, or as they used to say in 5th War, they often called them Frenchmen.
1: Right. Okay.
0: The French. They have the community in 5th War called Frenchtown, French right? Frenchtown. Zodico music and the Boudin, right? Oh,
1: you're so making me hungry, Tuan.
0: cultural heritage. I think Black Houston just would not be the same were it not for that Creole migration that, that started in the 20s. It really changed what Black Houston means.
1: Absolutely. And we're here with Tawana Steptoe, and we're talking about her book, Houston Bound, Culture and Color in a Jim Crow City. She's a professor at the University of Arizona, an assistant professor of history, and her book is published by University of California Press. And I'm your host, James Stansel, on the African-American Studies channel of the New Books Network. And it's so exciting to me to be talking about Houston. I'm Houston-based, and I'm here with the Houston Young lady herself, and so we're just kind of chatting it up about Houston. She's talking about that Bodan. I'm thinking about like gumbo and salsa. Oh Oh, my goodness, (laughs) all that that good stuff! And I haven't even had lunch yet. Why are you doing this to me? (laughs) Why are you doing this to me? And one of the things I want to mention too, Tawana, is that um, you know, we talked about um, you know, a a little before, you know, the different. You know races and different groups, but even you know like you said and it, it, it was really key, and it stood out to me that even within the black race you know or the or, or black groups of people, you know you would say a a school is uh has is diverse or has multiple types of people in it, but they would mean black and creole right
0: right exactly <laughs> when I would interview people, I would say, you know, tell me about what it was like to be a student at Wheatley High School right like, Wheatley and Yates High School are especially important to the book. And a time again, people would say, Oh, yeah, well, it was a mixed school. And I thought, Well, how is Wheatley mixed in the 30s, 40s, (laughs) and 50s when you had, you know, before the Brown decision, you know, before integration? And what they meant were, they would say, Oh, yeah, you know, the French students and then the black students. (laughs) So I found that people there in Fitport often conceptualized Creole or French, as they would call it and black as these different groups, even though by law, they were the same. You know, and so for a while there, there seemed to be some conflicts between the students there. You know, I interviewed one woman who family moved to Houston in the 1920s, and she talked about how the students would chase her home from school and beat her up because she, she talked funny, right, as they said, right? She was just learning English because they were coming from Louisiana. They came from less than 200 miles away But she had to learn a new language in order to go to school in fifth ward. So at first, she talked about this tension over what was going on there in the community. But those stories weren't as prominent. As the generations moved on, Mm -hmm. you know, after a while, her children didn't have the same struggle over being accepted in Fifth Ward as her generation did. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I argue in the book is that in Fifth Ward, you begin to see the creation of a community that brings Creole into black culture. Right. And so that's really where the music starts to come in. Right. I would argue that jazz music in the 1930s and the bands that were established in these high schools in Houston, uh, there were three Booker T. Washington, Yates, and Wheatley. Mm-hmm. Though surprisingly, Booker T. Washington was the last to get a jazz band, even though Washington is very well known for its music programs sure, <laughs> later sure. down the road. Early on, they had a principal who thought that jazz music was the devil's music. So uh, it was Yates and Wheatley that first were out of the gate with uh, having popular music being played. And so I found that it was at high school and around this musical culture that you began to see the integration of Creole and Black Texan coming together. And they helped to create a version of Big Band Swing that uh, became known down the road as Texas Tenor. When they all got famous and began to leave Houston to go to places like Chicago and New York, okay. people referred to it as Texas tenor, which referred to a way of playing tenor saxophone. Mm-hmm. So you had this mixture of uh, Creole students like Illinois Jaquette, who did not speak a word of English you know, when he first started going to Crawford Elementary in Fifth Ward. And they had to mix with Texas-born people like Arnett Cobb, who also grew up to be a famous tenor saxophone mm-hmm. player. So I argue that it's culture, especially musical culture, that allows for the creation of a community that is both Black Texan and Louisiana Creole mm-hmm. coming together. It's uh, music was sort of a common language mm-hmm. for people who spoke French and English. So it's a community building, uh, a community building aspect. Of Houston, and that's why I made music a very important part right. of the book. So, starting with jazz and then Zodico, and the way that Zodico used Louisiana music that was called La La, used to be mm-hmm. called La La in Louisiana, okay. and it fuses with rhythm and blues in Houston. And the word zydeco was actually created in Houston. Wow, <laughs> they I did not zydeco in Louisiana. They they started calling it zydeco in Houston specifically, and uh, the person who created the name of that genre always meant for it to refer to the combination of Texas and Louisiana mm-hmm. that you saw in Frenchtown that started to develop uh, before World War II, and then by the 1950s called zydeco. So I know people from Louisiana always get mad when I say that, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> the word zotico was always meant to refer to the Houston blending.
1: The history is what it is. I mean,
0: they they can't get upset.
1: (laughs) And we keep talking about this blending of the Creole and the East Texas, and makes me just has me thinking about a Beyonce song for some reason. I don't
0: right. (laughs) Yeah, you know, Beyonce's roots are definitely in that blending as well. And uh, she she came out with the song Formation after Mm -hmm. my book was already out, (laughs) or else I would have definitely analyzed it. But you know, she says in that song, "You mix that Negro with that Creole." Mm -hmm make it Texas Bama, right, Mm -hmm. so that she's talking about that combination of black and Creole. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people thought, isn't Creole black? (laughs) How do you mix Mm -hmm. those two things if Creole is black? But there was a very long history, like I said, where Mm -hmm. Creoles of color thought of themselves as being a mixture. They didn't think of themselves as black or white. Mm -hmm. It's not until many of them start migrating and moving into places like Houston and blending cultures, and then as I I argue in the book, they're especially influenced by black power Mm -hmm. to start embracing a a sort of black subjectivity. And so by the 60s, Creole is more like their ethnicity and their race is black. And I think that plays out with Beyonce, right? You see her refer to herself as a black woman, but she always refers to her Creole cultural Mm -hmm. roots.
1: From, From her mother. I was right. thinking, to I was thinking you were gonna actually break it down and give us, you know, the, your version of Beyonce formation right there. I was, that's, what I was, <laughs> that's what I was hoping for, but I guess I could, I could still hope, right? You gonna, you gonna give it to us or? Uh,
0: no, I think we'll leave that to Beyonce. Oh, okay. <laughs> <A little> better.
1: <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, you had it though. You, you know, I, I, you know, I was, I was gonna give you your opening there. But, <laughs> so, Beyonce, if you're listening. You know, Dr. Steptoe still believes that, you know, you can do that best. But, you know, she can,
0: <laughs> she can do the
1: history. You'll do the uh, the singing part, right? Is that, is that what we'll do? So we're here with Dr. Tawana Steptoe. Her book is Houston Bound, Culture and Color in a Jim Crow City. And this book is published by University of California Press. And Dr. Steptoe is an assistant professor of history at the University of Arizona. So you're not too far from home. You're pretty close by.
0: Pretty close by. Right. My first job out of grad school was at the University of Washington in Seattle. And uh, I was there for quite a bit. I spent about six years in Seattle before uh, coming down to the southwest here in Arizona. So, yeah, I can drive to visit my family. It's a long drive, but it can be done.
1: (laughs) It can be done. So that's your your second cold weather place, right? Wisconsin and then Washington State.
0: And then Washington. Yeah. Very uh, dark and rainy. In Seattle, but a wonderful city. Yeah, I was going to say, we love Seattle now.
1: You know, we we don't, you know, we, we love Seattle. We're not saying anything negative about Seattle.
0: Yes, love Seattle. It will always be a second home to me. Love
1: Absolutely. that. Absolutely. But it's a little colder than what we're used to now. And
0: yes.
1: Uh, that's all we're saying. We love the Seahawks. And oh,
0: yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. That, that's that's all we're saying. And, you know, Tawana, one of the things I like to do when, you know, we, you know when I talk with the authors is, uh, you know, maybe give you a chance to talk about how you conducted your research and, you know, what methods and techniques you use, because there are many young people listening um, who are in college or, you know, K-12, and they may want to grow up one day and become a Dr. Tawana Steptoe. You know, so, you know, what are some of the methods and techniques that you use? And, and maybe also, you know, tell the audience how long it took for you to complete this project.
0: Oh, well, you know, that last question may makes <laughs> people off. <laughs> Well, you know, this started. I first wrote a master's thesis that was about the Houston Riot of 1917. Okay. Right, which is actually this is the 100th anniversary of that wow. in August. Oh will be 100 years since that. And that's what uh, that was a springboard into Houston Bound. So that dissertation, I started it in 2005, mm-hmm. right? And uh, the book hit the shelves in 2015. So mm-hmm. it was almost a decade between mm-hmm. the dissertation research and then shaping it into a book that mm-hmm. it became after I graduated. But in terms of the methods that I used for research, I started off like just about all social historians by mm-hmm. looking in archives at old newspapers, right? right, right. right. And uh, a lot of people don't know that that type of research is actually free. You know, you can go down to the Houston Public Library, especially the Houston Metropolitan Research Center or okay. the HMRC. You know, you go in there, you fill out some information, you put your things in a locker, and then there are this treasure trove of sources for you to look at. And so they have all of these old newspapers on microfilm, including African-American newspapers dating back to 1919 to look at. So that's kind of where I started looking for what were the issues that people talked about in newspapers, especially looking for issues of migration and race. Mm -hmm. And uh, from there though, you know, as I said earlier when I was talking about the overview of the book, race and the changes in race happened outside of the law right so the jim crow laws didn't change but who the laws affected did change right. so i found that i couldn't use a lot of the official legal sources to get at this story i had to do something a little more grassroots to get at it especially since you know creoles were always considered black by law. It was hard to find anything at the legal or political level about them. Politicians, when they talked about race, they talked about Negroes or colored people. They didn't specifically name Creole within that. But I knew that Creoles were there. So in order to find that, I started interviewing people. You know, I looked up some people who lived in Mm Frenchtown and some people who were really, they played a big role in preserving French Towns Heritage, and just started talking to them. And so sometimes it would just be me with the tape recorder going into someone's house and sitting at the kitchen and interviewing them about Mm -hmm. what their experience was. And several of those people shared family photographs with me. A woman named Denise Labrie was really instrumental in introducing me to her family members and family photographs. So she gave me an old family photo from the early 1900s that appears in the book. That's not something I could get in an archive. Absolutely I got not. Because, you know, Denise LeBrie, you know, opened that up to me, opened the family album, literally. And I interviewed her mother, who was in her 80s at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, who I was very happy to be able to send a copy of the book with her parents wow. in and say, hey, thank you for what you contributed. So, you know, I feel like uh, interviewing is something that anyone interested in history can get started with. You can start by interviewing people in your family or mm-hmm. in your community. You know, nowadays, smartphones have a recording device that's pretty good on it. So uh, that's a very accessible way to start doing historical Great. research and to get those stories that aren't always Preserved in the archives. Mm -hmm. Right. A lot of people don't get the histories of working class folks or histories of migration. You know, people who weren't famous. Mm -hmm. That's how you get those folks is just by going in and talking to them.
1: And their their story is just as important as everyone else's story.
0: Right. Right. And,
1: And you never know the person that you talk to could be, you know, a a great book or an important story. You may think they're not important, but they could be someone that you didn't even know about their historical significance.
0: Exactly. So while there are musicians who were known all over the world in the book, like Lightning Hopkins, right? He's a very familiar name. But I got to interview four men, four Mexican-American men, who used to play rhythm and blues and soul music in in the 60s. And uh, without that interview, I think that I probably... My last chapter that talks a lot about Mexican-American influence on soul music in Houston probably wouldn't have even been there had I not spent an afternoon with these four men who were teenagers in the 60s (laughs) and unpacking their stories. So after I got their uh, history, I started going and digging and finding more information. And what I found is that there's Mexican-American influence all over soul music in Texas. Even uh, in the song Tighten Up, most famous rhythm and blues song mm-hmm. of the 60s to come out of Houston, right? Mm-hmm. The horn section in that is inspired by a Mexican-American style called Orquesta. And the producer of that song brought in Mexican-Americans to play their horns <laughs> in that song. So, you know, that, that history of mixing in Houston uh, has influenced what we call black culture, right? But that you actually see a lot of Creole and Mexican-American mixing in there to create black culture in Houston. That's,
1: that's, that's amazing. amazing. And that's one of my favorite songs as well. What is it, Archie Bell and the Drills?
0: Archie Bell and the Drills, right? I know. When they would go on tour, they would actually have a band called Sunny and the Sunliners, who a lot of people might be familiar with, a group of uh, Mexican-American musicians who okay. are from San Antonio. But then came down to Houston, and Houston is where they got their record deal. Well, the Sunliners and uh, Archie Bell would tour together, and wow. the Sunliners would be the backing band while they would play, right? So you would have African-American and Mexican-American mixture right there on stage. Right.
1: That's amazing, and that's so much of what Houston is about. Right. Know? And you did a great job representing it, to one in your book. Houston Bound, Culture and Color in a Jim Crow City published by the University of California Press. I'm your host on the African-American Studies channel of the New Books Network, James Stansel, And I have this great pleasure of being here, just kind of talking with a native Houston person, Tawana Steptail. And so, Tawana, you know, you, thank you so much for sharing how you do the research, you know, interviews, you know, going to archives and things like that. And, you know, I, I really appreciate you talking about those things because I want people to know they can they can become you. You know, they can do what you did. I mean, you know, at, at the time as a young person, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you were a film person. You didn't know necessarily you were going to be going, you know, in, into history. Now, here you are, you know, having done this, this great and influential work. So I want you all, particularly young people who are listening, you know, and, and older people too, you know, it's never too late to learn about your history, um, you, you know, even if you don't write a book, but, you know, just to maybe document the history in your family. Like Dr. Steptoe said, you can use cell phones, um, recording devices, you know, write things down, but you don't want to let that history get away. Once they're too old, you know, and they they can't remember or they can't talk about it, it's too late. And and so here we are deep into the 21st century and you're writing about the 20th century. You know, pretty soon a lot of the people that you talk to or, you know, some of those records and stuff may be gone. So it's very important to... Um, record this research for your family and you know even if it's not for academic purposes but for your family and your and your personal his- history would you agree to one i
0: agree absolutely in fact one of my great aunts participated in the research process of the book she's one of the first people mm-hmm. i interviewed you know her name was uh, barbara jean johnson and she's actually related to me and one of the sources that i use she passed away last september You know, and that really hit me hard that, wow, the people that I write about that generation, Mm -hmm. we're losing them. You know, Mm -hmm. so I'm at least glad that for professional purposes, because she contributed to the book. But for personal reasons, too, I had that piece of family history always recorded for me and to pass down to generations.
1: And for that period of time where we're talking about Creoles and and, Mm -hmm. for people who are from Houston area, I mean, we see people who are Creole type folk all the time. But, you know. Just take back to that time when they were predominantly French speaking. Right. You, you know, I mean, that was just, that's just a, 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 an entirely different, you know, uh, frame of reference for people, particularly people who maybe aren't from Louisiana or Texas. But even people who are from here, you know, to have someone in your class that maybe looks similar to you but doesn't speak English, you know. And so this is the time period that Tawana's talking about in, in her textbook. Uh, not well, it can be a textbook depending on the history class, right? right? I'm sure you, you would love for it to be adopted. As, yes. <laughs> <laughs> please ado- please adopt it as a textbook, but for her book, Houston Bound Culture and Color in a Jim Crow City. So Tawana, I don't want to keep you here all day. I know you know you're pretty busy there at the University of Arizona, but I did want to give you a chance to, you know too if you if you want to uh, maybe share some you know important takeaway points. Uh, you know, with, with the audience or, you know, maybe, so, you know, something you want to talk to young people about. And then also I uh, wanted you to maybe tell us about some of your current research or future research that you're going to be involved with.
0: Yes. Well, the project that I'm working on now actually started when I was doing the research for Houston. Ah. I started finding a lot of information on Peacock Records, which was a record Company created by Don Roby at uh, Eric Houston. He was an entrepreneur, African American entrepreneur. He owned a uh nightclubs like right. the Bronze Peacock. Before that, he had a place called the Harlem Grill. He launches Peacock Records in the late 1940s, and actually some of the most influential and popular rhythm and blues artists came through Peacock. Uh, Willie Mae, Big Mama Thornton, Little mm-hmm. Richard was signed to Peacock for a while, mm-hmm. and then Roby got into gospel, right, in the, by the 60s and was recording a lot of gospel. I, I got very interested in Thornton in part because of a picture that I found that was Speaking of family history, a picture of Thornton with my grandfather. Uh, oh, wow. my, gran- my grandparents lived in Fifth Ward. Uh, my grandmother was born and raised in Fifth Ward near Frenchtown. And uh, I ran into this picture after my grandfather passed away in 2000. And it was a picture of him with Thornton at the Bronze Peacock. And I was interested in the picture because of the way Thornton was dressed. I would always heard rumors that she sort of, quote, unquote, dressed like a man, right? That she would wear suits and ties, you know, and and dress in a very masculine way. But I'd never seen photographs of her dressed that way. Normally, Peacock would make her wear pearls and dresses, and they would make her look, you know, play into normative femininity, you know? But here was this picture of her dressed the way she wanted, and it was very masculine attire. So I got very interested in the way that she had to negotiate gender. And I started looking into it and a lot of people who were also signed to Peacock talked about the way that she was masculine presenting, as we Mm say, right? But Peacock tried to tone it down. Same thing happens with Little Richard who, when he first uh, was signed to Peacock, was very feminine in his appearance. People commented on his hairstyle and his makeup and everything. It's something else that they tried to tone down. So I became interested then in how these early rhythm and blues performers Actually, brought a sort of queer aesthetic into rhythm and blues. Mm-hmm. But as the civil rights movement began to progress, people started becoming interested in respectability, right? Presenting African American culture in respectable ways so that the opposition couldn't tear them down, right? Uh-huh. And so you start seeing uh, more con- more restraints on rhythm and blues artists. You had to portray themselves as more normatively feminine and masculine. Right. little Richard, of course, ends up leaving the scene and going into gospel entirely. <coughs> Excuse me. Whereas Thornton ends up leaving Peacock, going out west, and doesn't record all that much anymore. She makes a few recordings in the '60s, but after the early '50s, she could never really uh, achieve the fame that she did. Uh, of the early 50s when she had songs like Hound Dog, which got remade Mm -hmm. by Elvis Presley and made him rich and famous. Right. So I looked at the way that early rhythm and blues, how there was always a lot of controversy Mm
1: -hmm. over
0: gender and sexuality. And that sort of is launching my new project.
1: Okay. That sounds great. Yeah. Big Mama Thornton is definitely one of my favorite artists. Um, So I'm I'm looking forward to uh, reading that work and hopefully... Are you thinking this is going to be a book-length project?
0: Yeah, right now it's an article. that It's article form, and I'm hoping that it'll be published sometime this year or early 2018. Hopefully that'll be in print. And in the meantime, I'm working on a longer book manuscript now, looking for Uh, a publisher for that project and uh, sort of shaping what it'll look like. Right now it's looking like a history of rhythm and blues, but told through the lens of race, gender, and sexuality.
1: Okay. okay, that sounds great. Because that's what exactly what I was going to say. Hopefully, when you get that thing out there, you can come back and talk with us on the New Books Network. Right? Yes,
0: yes, would love to.
1: Yeah, that that sounds great to me. And you know, it's funny you you mentioned a little Richard, Big Mama Thought, and I was thinking, I think his the artist's name is Billy Tipton. Is that right? Yes. And you know that that whole you know the kind of gender bending situation. Right. Right. Yeah, and that's the first thing I thought of when you when you mentioned uh, Little Richard and uh, um, Big Mama Thornton, you know. And again, just like Doctor Steptoe said, if you don't know Big Mama Thornton, you definitely know Elvis Presley. Uh, hound dog, right? Hound dog blues. You ain't nothing but a hound dog,
0: right? And it was a number one rhythm and blues hit for Thornton earlier, right? And then about two right. years later, in 1956, Elvis makes his recording. So you know, people who were sort of diehard rhythm and blues fans know Thornton's version and know it very well. But Mm -hmm. in terms of mainstream rock and roll music, people usually attribute it to Elvis, you know? So uh, it's something that everyone who writes about her has to start with saying, well, she did do it first, right? A a Lever and (laughs) Stoller song that she interpreted became a huge hit, but then an even bigger hit when it crossed over with the white man recording it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's, that's a whole topic for another day, yes. you know, but often that's kind of, you know, what, what has happened and what has taken place, even in, even with blues. Right. You know, you know with Texas blues, we could, you know, we could get into Stevie Ray Vaughan and, you know, and some of those kind of things. But we will not get into those things today. We'll have to have you back, Tawana, maybe to talk about some of those things once you uh, get that other uh, article and that book ready to go. Yes,
0: would
1: love to. And we're here with Dr. Tawana Steptoe. She's a professor and assistant professor of history at the University of Arizona, but she is one of our own, Houston. right? And her book is Houston Bound, Culture and Color in a Jim Crow City. And this book is published by the University of California Press. And I would like to say, Tawana, thank you so much for taking the time uh, you know, to, to, to share uh, your work with us. Thank you so much for writing this book. You know, as, you know, for me as a person who is not originally from Houston, but I got here as fast as I could. As they like to say down here in Texas, um, you know, it was really informative for me. I love blues and it was great for me to be able to learn more about that Zydeco and blues connection and, you know, the Creole. I mean, it was it was great for me. And, you know, thank you so, so much. And I'm looking forward to your other work, too, because it sounds like a lot of your areas of research and interest definitely interest me. And I know that'll interest our audiences here on the African-American Studies channel of the New Books Network.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me.
1: Is is my pleasure. Anytime we can talk is all is always a cool and a fun time for me. It's just like we're sitting around in the coffee shop, uh, you know, talking about fun stuff. Yes. So, Tawana, I'm not going to hold you up much longer. I'll Let you get back to grading. We're getting close to mid semester, so I know you've got lots of things that you're doing. Oh
0: yeah, big boatload of papers coming later this week. <laughs>
1: But thank you so much for, for your time um, and, and talking with us on the New Books Network about your book, Houston Bound, Culture and Color in a Jim Crow City. And I'm here with the author, Tawana Steptoe. So, Tawana, thank you so much. We'll close it out here. If you could tell my audience goodbye.
0: All right. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. And thanks for having me on the show, James.
1: It is my pleasure. And I will see you next time on the African American Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James Stansel. Peace and love all right we're back here this is james stansell of the african-american studies channel the new books network i hope you enjoyed that interview with dr tawana l steptoe university of california press the book was houston bound culture and color in a jim crow city and she is an assistant professor of history at the university of arizona a great conversation. Check out her book and, you know, check out some of her other work that she's done and what she's going to be doing in the future. She shared with us an article she's got coming out and eventually is going to be a book about Big Mama Thornton and Little Richard, Peacock Records here in the Houston area. She's doing great work. And on that note, I'll say goodbye. Peace and love. This is James Stance of the African-American Studies channel on the New Books Network. Take care. Thank you.